Welcome to the sermon podcast of Resurrection Community Church in Virginia Beach. We seek to connect people to God and one another through His Word, and hope this sermon brings you closer to God. Um, Jude is, as already said, it's short. It's 25 verses. It's uh, the third out of the list on the list of fifth shortest books uh, in the Bible. Uh, but, but not only is Jude short, but Jude is, is very specifically to the point. Jude uh, will draw on several different, actually, interestingly enough, draws on Genesis 19, uh, the passage we would have been covering this morning, Sodom and Gomorrah. He draws on several different Old Testament stories to communicate his message to us. Uh, Jude not only draws on Old Testament stories, he also draws on apocryphal literature. Uh, and that is kind of disruptive to us who live in the year 2023 because uh, we don't read the Book of Enoch, I don't think, unless someone has a Book of Enoch that I'm not aware of. Uh, but but Jude is, is, is talking to first century Christians who a lot of them came out of the synagogue, and they're very familiar with these stories, just like, you know, if I were to say Zacchaeus was a wee little man, you all would say, and a wee little man was he. You know, we're, we're familiar with these kind of stories and illustrations that have been passed down through kind of, you know, Christian tradition over the years, uh, just as the, the stories of Enoch and, and, and different things that didn't happen in the Bible elaborate stories that we understand about the Bible. Um, so Jude draws on these, uh, these literatures, these things as well, in presenting his message to us. You know, so, so lest we get a little bit um, uh, confused in him saying, you know, is, is Enoch part, should be part of the Bible. Uh, that's another conversation I'm willing to have off, offline. Uh, but anyway, uh, Jude is 66% similar uh, with the book of 2 Peter. Uh, and both books are uniquely focused on this reality that, that as they write at the end of the apostolic era, that they are looking towards this event that has been spoken about all the way since um, Matthew 24, and that's what's called the parousia, the second coming of Christ, that, that Jesus is going to come. And, and as they're writing, you know, maybe 70, 80, 90 AD, they're saying, okay, this this event is going to happen. It's going to happen at some point. It's going to happen at some point soon. It is imminent. And here we are in the year 2023, and we're still waiting for this event. So it's, it's abundantly relevant for us today. Uh, so let's read together uh, Jude, beginning in verse 1. Read all the way down to verse 25. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you, beloved. Although I was not, although I was very eager to write to you about our coming salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you and contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were um, de uh, designated for this conduct condemnation, ungodly people who perverted the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once formally knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own positions of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment day of the great." 
Um, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the uh, uh, surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also rely on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, blaspheme, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael contended with the devil, with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a, a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understood instinctively. Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain, uh, the, the sake of the gain of Balaam's error and perish in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reeves at your love feast, as they feast among you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord come with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all, to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they, may, that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building up yourself in your own holy faith and praying in the, in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt Save others, snatching them out of the fire to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his holy, uh, before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. So um, in 1985, you guys might remember it as the year that the Bears uh, had their Super Bowl vi victory, 1986. 1985 uh, was also the year that Steve Jobs uh, was fired from Apple. Uh, if you guys remember back into the history of Apple, in fact, the Super Bowl ad from the year before, 1984, they had that commercial uh, when they were releasing the Apple II that 1984 wouldn't be like 1984. And this was the pinnacle of Steve Jobs' achievement at Apple. He had started the company uh, back in the 70s with his friend Steve Wozniak. It was one of those Silicon Valley stories. They started out of their garage just like HP did. Uh, they had started this company. They had moved to Cupertino. Uh, they had a headquarters by this point. They had you know, a couple thousand employees. They had released several products. But at the end of the day, even though the Apple II was the most innovative computer up to that point, uh, the company was very much underperforming. They had, you know, probably at that point, less than 5% of the market share. They were competing with Microsoft. They were competing with other people. Well, he, Steve, had, uh, in 19, around 1980, hired this guy in, whose name was John Scully, 
to be kind of the CEO, even though Steve maintained his position as the chairman and the executive of Apple. Well, Scully came in, and, and, and Scully ousted Jobs in 1985, blaming all of the bad performance on Steve and his poor attitude, which he did have, and, and basically, uh, you know, organized the whole board to get him out of there. Well, Steve Jobs is about that time maybe a 30-year-old, uh, you know, executive millionaire, uh, is in this position, and he's thinking, okay, I'm 30 years old. I'm fired from the company I started. I'm fired from the company that I'm passionate about. And, and the, my own hand-picked CEO has turned the whole board against me. What am I going to do with my life? What am I going to do in this place where I don't know what the path forward looks like? Some of us might know that story. He went on to go to Pixar. Uh, that's, that's a topic for another day. But the point is this, that, that Jude invites us into. What do we do? When the future seems very uncertain, where do we turn when we don't know what direction we're supposed to go in? When we're faced with these challenges in life, when we're faced with situations where, where the future seems very hazy, what is it for us that becomes the motivation, the thing that drives us forward? That's what Jude is speaking to today as he writes us this letter. He's speaking to this reality of living in a world that is full of uncertainty. And you and I are very familiar with this world. Because in this world, we have to choose where to live, how to raise our families, what to do with our lives, where are we going to worship. We have to make all of these decisions, and we have to do so by faith in a God who we never get to see with our eyes, but a God who we know and experience through our worship, through our prayer, a God who we experience by faith, and yet we make all of these decisions in a world that is ever-present in front of us, that is calling us out to all of these different things. And Jude says, how do we live in this world by faith in this God? How do we live in this world of uncertainty? He's writing to address that need that we all have uh, today. And, and, and not only does he say that, but he also says, as people of faith, as Christians... How do we live in this world knowing, as I've already mentioned, that the parousia, that Christ's second coming, is imminent, that it will be here any day? That ever since uh, Jude said these words in the last days, ever since uh, John said his words in his last several epistles, and Peter as well, not to mention Paul, not to mention Jesus, who said, look, I'm going to come back, and it's going to be like a thief in the night. And Jude says, okay, we're living here in this world of uncertainty, and we know that at any moment Jesus could come. And so he brings this eternal, this kingdom reality. He lays it on top of all the things that we already experience. And he says, how do we live in this world before this God, and how do we walk by faith? And what Jude wants to show us, he says, in light of Christ's eternal kingdom, we must contend for the faith by holding fast to God who builds us up in the faith and keeps us in his love. What Jude wants us to see, the main point of his book is this, that in light of Christ's eternal kingdom, we must contend for the faith by holding fast to God, who builds us up in faith and keeps us in his love. Now, that's a, that's a lot to unpack, but we're going to look at that in three different ways together today. We're going to look at how this God keeps us 
in his love, how he keeps us by his faith, by, by our faith in him and by his faithfulness to us. We want to see that in three ways together today. We want to see uh, that, that this God causes us to rest in his justice. He causes us to trust in his timing and to cling to his mercy. What Jude says to us is, how do we live in this world of uncertainty? We, we live knowing that Christ is at work, that we live in Christ's kingdom, and that, that God is holding fast to us, and we must hold fast to him. And he is keeping us in love, and, and in that, we are going to rest in his justice, trust in his timing, and cling to his mercy. So first, how do we rest in God's justice? Well, Jude begins in verse 5. He says, um, although... You once formerly knew it that Jesus saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterwards, destroyed those who did not believe. Then he goes on to elaborate this message that he just communicated to us, this message about the exodus from Egypt, the book of Deuteronomy, summarizing all of those stories here in the span of this one verse, saying, okay, you know, remember God saved Israel out of Egypt. Remember they kind of struggled a little bit in the wilderness. Do you guys remember that, right? You know, they had some struggles. He said, you're gonna, it's going to be 40 years before you go into the wilderness, before you go into the promised land. Because of their lack of faith in this God, he elaborates uh, these stories uh, by pointing to several other stories. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah, of Lot and, and his desire to, to live for himself, to go to that land that God then, in Genesis 19, destroys. He also talks about these angels who are fallen. He also talks about these people summarizing their, their, their personalities, summarizing what they're all about in these words in verses 14 through 16, saying these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. Behold, he says in verse 14, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on ungodly sinners that he has spoken against. What Jude is saying to us is he's saying God is, is aware of everything that's going on in this world. And God will judge, as Paul says in the book of Romans, vengeance is mine. God will judge. But it's up to God to judge at his own time. Now, that's a difficult message for us, I think, especially living in the year 2023, because as I said, you know, we all live in a world of uncertainty. And I, and I think recently, not only in, in our culture, but also in our church, we have seen this tendency to want to follow people who are effective, to want to follow people who get the job done, and simply because of their abilities we say, oh, well, you know, they're a good leader. They're a good person. Thinking specifically, I don't know how many of you guys have, have read or, or seen recently. Mike Kruger put out a book called The Bully Pulpit. There was a whole podcast um, that Mike uh, Casper did with uh, uh, Christianity Today called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, where they're talking about this reality that in the church, in the world, that we will follow a leader simply because they're effective, because they're, they're a bully for us. And they do the things that we want them to do. And Jude says, no, 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 that's not how it works in God's kingdom. Because in God's kingdom, we leave justice up to God. Now, we live in a world that is uncertain. We live in a world that is very wishy-washy. We live in a world with difficulties. But Jude calls us back and he says, remember, it's God who's going to judge. Remember, it's, it's God's prerogative to act. 
God is king, God is Lord, and so we must rest in him by faith. And what this faith does is it frees us now to live in this world of uncertainty. It frees us now to rest in God's purposes, to rest in God's place. It it frees us now to live a life that is a reflection of this God who we serve, this God who saved us, this God who gave his life for us. It frees us now to live lives of mercy towards others to live lives of of grace towards others, to live lives resting in God's judgment, resting in God's justice and trusting in his finished work. It frees us to live lives before this God, to be faithful in all the things that he's called us to because we're trusting and resting and hoping in God and not ourselves. We're trusting in his character and not our own character. We're trusting in his righteousness and not not our own righteousness. That he will judge, and it's not up to me to judge. And that can sometimes be a a difficult message for us, but what what Jude is calling us to is he's calling us to live lives of faith in this God. Not only to live lives of faith in this God, but also to live lives of patience. Because next he calls us to trust not only in God's justice, but also in God's timing. Now, me and my brothers, I I have uh, two boys and a girl. I grew up in a house uh, with two boys and a girl. My sister was older, and it was me and my younger brother. We were the youngest two in the family. And we caused a little bit of trouble. I don't know, you know, there's several in here who have boys, two boys. Well, if you get two boys together, you cause a little bit of trouble. Uh, and, and, and we caused a bit of trouble in our day, and I can remember one event specifically. Uh, me and my brother are there. We're playing on the phone. My mom's in the house. My dad had just left for work, and we're, we're messing around with the phone. Well, all of a sudden, my dad walks back in the door, and I say to my brother, Joe, put the phone down. Dad's coming back in. And my mom's like, I've been standing here this whole time. You know, what's going on? It's like as if you're not afraid of me, but then dad's coming in, and his, the, the fact that he's going to walk in is the thing that scares us. And and Jude similarly reminds us that the imminence of of God's coming, of Christ's second coming, is this reality that brings this different layer to our conversation, that brings a different layer to our lives. You know, as, as with me and my brother, oh, Dad's coming, this changes the context of the situation drastically. Jude reminds us over and over again, he says, Christ is coming. How does that change your perspective? of God's justice, of God's presence in this world. Christ is coming. How does that change our perspective? And what we see is a couple of things in relation to that. We see that that Christ is coming, but he's coming in his own timing. In fact, most interestingly, he says in verse 9, he talks about the archangel Michael when he contends with the devil over the body of Moses, and he did not presume to pronounce judgment on him, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. Then he goes on in, in, verse, um, in verse 11 to talk about uh, these, these people who blaspheme God. He talks about Korah. He talks about Cain, and he, and he elaborates on them. He says, these are hidden snares, wild waves, casting up um, uh, foam, um, it, it, casting up foam of shame in, in what they're doing. And, and what Jude is reminding us of is he's saying, hey, there, there's always been people who are opposed to God. And God is always going to act, but he's going to act at the time that he wants to. Think about that story of Cain. Think about the story of Korah. I was just reviewing that this morning as I was thinking, you know, in preparation for the sermon there in Deuteronomy 16. 
And Korah led 250 people to oppose Moses in the wilderness. And Korah and all those people were judged, but they come up over and over and over again, Korah and his family in, in the Psalms, because his family still remained among the Israelites. And that reminder still remained that even though their father had committed this sin, even though Cain had killed his brother Abel, he still founded the Canaanite community, you know, that the tribe that then Israel takes over. That even though God does judge and even though God acts, that sometimes God acts and he judges and he does so immediately, but he does so with mercy. And we live with this perpetual reality of that God is here, God is present, God is moving and working, and he's judging, but his timing is much different than our own. His timing is much different than our own. And I don't know about you guys, but I am a very impatient person. You know, my wife gives me a hard time all the time because I don't have to drive down 264. I, I live for... Eight years of my life, worked in Virginia Beach, lived in Norfolk, had to drive down that terrible road to 264 every day. And, and every time it's backed up, I'm like, all right, I'm taking the first exit to get off of Virginia Beach Boulevard, only to find it's backed up there, too. She's like, why do you do that? It's like, because I can't stand sitting in the traffic on 264. It's terrible. You know, I'm terribly impatient like that. And some of us are impatient that way in our lives, but also, if we're honest with ourselves, we're impatient that way in the church. I've been reading a, a bit recently into uh, disability theology. One of the writers, John Swinton at the University of Aberdeen, he said that um, 40% of adults with a developmental or intellectual disability do not find themselves in the church in their adulthood. And, so, and, he, and he writes this book, it's called Becoming Friends with Time. He says a lot of the problem is that our timing is not the same as God's timing. That sometimes these conversations, whether we're reaching a, a, across intellectual or developmental barriers, whether we're re reaching across cultural or social or gender barriers, that these conversations a lot of time are different than, than, than we're used to. That these conversations become challenging. These conversations involve something called love, something called empathy, something called understanding. And a lot of times when we're impatient, we're not willing to give that in the context of those conversations. And what Jude is calling us today is saying, look, look at this God. Look at how he responds to us in the, in, in the reality of his justice, in the reality of his timing. That he knows what's going on, he knows when it's going to happen, but he says, no, I'm going to do things on my own timing. And the question for us in the church is, do we leave things up to God's timing in that way? Do we rest in God's timing? Do we rest in his purpose? Do we trust? No, God has the justice. No, God will act when it's right for him to act. No, God will do what is appropriate, and at that moment, he will act and he will move. And that's a difficult question for us who are impatient, but it's also an inviting question for us who have faith in this God. Because it invites us to this place, finally, that we see. It invites us to this place of God's mercy. Because as we learn to live in God's timing, as we learn to think more empathetically, to think more lovingly in the context of these conversations, we begin to see the mercy that this God imparts to us. And that's where James, or Jude turns us to at the end. He says in verse 20, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our God, of our Lord Jesus Christ, that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. 
Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. What Jude says to us at the end of this letter, he says, look, we know that God is just. And we must rest in his timing, and we must have this higher capacity for patience. But what we know is the character of this God, and he is merciful. And he calls us to live lives of mercy in the context of the actions of this God, in the context of the character of this God. He says, how can we now live lives of mercy? I love it as he says, showing mercy to those who doubt, save others by snatching them out of the fire. He says to live in this world of uncertainty means to live for a God who shows mercy. means to live in a way towards others that shows mercy to them where they are struggling to connect the dots. Where they are struggling to understand how we live and how we move and how we have our being in this world. And, And Jude says we need to do so in a way that shows mercy to others in a way that builds up relationships with them, in a way that shows them the character of this God, the character of this God that we see on display in Isaiah 42. As he describes God to us, and he says, remember, God is is like this gentle father, this gentle farmer who comes to this bruised reed, and he's not going to break it off. And this smoldering wick, and he's not going to put it out because he is gentle, he is patient, He is loving to us who are struggling. And what Jude is calling us to is he's saying, can we live in relationship to this God and live in relationship to others in that way? Can we show mercy to others because God has been merciful to us? Can we, in this world that is full of uncertainty, rest in God's kingdom, trust in his mercy, and live lives of mercy towards others? To show them the love that we've been given, to show them the grace that God has given to us, can we build up that capacity, that place in our own lives. As we end our our reflection on God's word today, the the question for us is, okay, but what does that really mean? What does that look like for us? And um, I think, you know, some some of you guys know, um, uh, Garrett's already mentioned me this morning, my wife and I this Thursday are celebrating our our 10th anniversary. Um, And as those who've been married for 10 years and more, uh, or less, you know that there's, there's a lot of hard years and there's a lot of great years. Uh, and we've had both of those. And I think some of the greatest years of our lives were lived just down the road, North Landing Road, uh, at our farmhouse. And, and when we were there, uh, Becca, she would wake up every morning, as I've already said. You know, my, my kids are a little bit crazy, as me and my brother were. And, and there's a lot of anxieties that are in the Fowler household, believe it or not. I'll be the first to tell you. And she would wake up every morning... And she would look out at her little, uh, you know, farm yard that we have there to the side of the house with the chickens and the ducks and the bunnies. And she would put on her boots to go out to take care of those animals in the morning. And as she put on her boots to walk out of the house to to go into the farmyard, she, she could lay aside all the stresses, all the things that were, you know, building up anxiety in her life and could step into this reality to, you know, take control over these chickens, to, to just serve the animals over there, to step into this new reality and to step into uh, this comfort and this peace, this, this comfort and peace that she felt as, as, she, as she stepped into that reality of being, you know, a farmer, a farm girl. And it was something that she enjoyed. 
And I think similarly, Christ is calling us to step into his finished work that he's provided for us on the cross, to take on this identity of what he has given for us, to embody that by his, by his love and to step out into the world by his grace to take on his identity and say, you know what, I can have confidence because of Jesus and what he has done. And I can go into this world that is full of uncertainty because of Jesus and because of his grace and because of what he promises us through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And we need that reality. We need that reminder. We need God and his grace, this grace that he promises us at this table. We need tangible reminders of that often, and we need uh, that, that vision to be set for us as we navigate this world that is full of uncertainty. And Jesus shows us that through his love. He shows us that through his grace. He shows us that in his cross. He says, your life is not a life of sin, it's not a life of darkness, of judgment, but your life is forever to be able to God and his kingdom. This is your hope now. And this is your hope forever. Let's close in prayer. God, we do ask that as we think about what you have done for us through Jesus Christ, what you have done through your death, your burial, and your resurrection, that you would remind us what it means to live now by faith in your world, to walk in faith that you have given to us through Jesus and through his sacrifice. Father, would you meet us this morning where we are at? Would you encourage us and lift us up? Would you give us the grace that we need to live presently in this world before you? God, would you be at work in our lives? May you bless us. May you cause us to know you more. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast from Resurrection Community Church. To learn more about our church and how you can connect with God and others, please visit resurrectionvb.org.